brakes were relined, the water pipes unplugged, the valves ground. We had promised Beardsley School that we would be back as soon as my Hollywood engagement came to an end. Inventive Humbert was to be, I hinted, chief consultant in the production of a film dealing with existentialism. Still a hot thing at the time. Uh, yeah, hot thing at the time in 62. Hot, uh, hot thing at the time today in 22. Although wow. I feel like it was hot in like Europe. It's kind of late because it would be hot in Europe in the 50s, but not really in the right. 60s. Right. So there's that slight delay getting across the Atlantic. Mm-hmm. Uh, throwback to existential thrillers, huh? Holler. Yes. Holler. We're, we're back in it, but not, I guess, I mean, in some ways, uh, a lot of the films we'll be talking about this cycle of episodes have a thriller aspect to them. And an existential aspect to it. And, and absolutely. Tons of just like dripping, um, absurd grappling with self and identity it's it's gonna it's gonna get weird on this batch of episodes (laughs) uh of what film trace this is the podcast where we trace the life of a film from conception to production all the way to release and reception um we are starting a new cycle i i'm kind of leaning towards series now though i feel like series is more appropriate we're we're, we're switching up series of six episodes uh that all share a similar theme what is that theme for this cycle series oh man i i don't know if i still like this term but it's what we picked so we got to stick with it uh (laughs) exceptions to the rule be damned and implications of the language be damned this is our series of episodes on risque romance films. Risque romance films. I, I really liked that uh, when we started this. I was like, oh, yeah, like this is going to be interesting. That is a very um, weighted term, isn't it? Oh, totally. Especially in the context of our uh, central movie that we're talking about today. And uh, we're doing things a little different than last cycle that we in with in so far as that we are starting <laughs> With the birth ish of the the, the subgenre, the the theme um, in American cinema, anyways, and uh, gonna see as it progresses, and we will eventually get to our finale. Um, should, can we give that away, Dan? Or yeah, is give it, it away. Give it away. Sure. Okay, it's something to look forward to. Um, we're very excited uh, and interested, and yeah, maybe a bit titillated as well about the <laughs> impending release uh oscar season uh and all of bones and all the new luke g film not even gonna try to pronounce his last name the guy <laughs> we who all made, know who he is we know who he is <laughs> call me by your name uh the great beauty do you make that one too yeah i think so yeah 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 uh italian dude who's now making things stateside though i, I mean call me by your name was still based took place in italy yeah, um, yeah, not sure what's gonna happen with this new uh, affair with Timothy Chalamet. Great and trailer. That's all I know. It's a, it's a very uh, provocative, evocative yes. Tale, yes. trailer. Both of those yeah. um, about uh, cannibal lovers, um, not like people who love cannibals, but like lovers. I, I mean, <laughs> is that cat's out of the bag, right? Like it's yeah, yeah. yeah. It kind of reminds it, me a little bit of Raw. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which is a great one of my favorite movies of the last decade. I still have to watch that. Oh, it's so good. Yeah, I'll so, get so that good. for for Shocktober. Yes. Um, I'm curious to to segue into yeah. our central film that we, you know, could. I think you 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 have a have a very good sell on this, Dan, because I was very shook when I saw it in our spreadsheet. Sure. Um, as a, an arguable like progenitor of the risque romance film. Um, it is Lolita, uh, the one and only adaptation of the Nabokov uh, novel a, by none other than Stanley Kubrick. So pitch it, Dan. Why did you pick this one to kick things off for this I mean, it's series? Pretty, it's pretty self-explanatory, right? It's the <laughs> elephant in the room. It's also like one of those yeah. movies when you think of like risque romance, you know, what? You, there's some sort of transgression going on. And the, the interesting thing about that term risque is the trans- transgression could really be anything, right? It can be any sort of social norm or rule that exists. It could be something like in Romeo and Juliet or like in, in a lighter 
version of it, uh, like Valley Girl, which we're doing later in this series, it's just like you live on the wrong side of, of, of the Los Angeles mountains, whatever the hell they're called. Right. <laughs> live in the valley versus Hollywood, right? <laughs> the uh, classic L.A. mountains. Yeah, the old L.A. mountains. Uh, the Hollywood Hills? Hollywood Hills. Yeah, that's yeah, what it is. Yeah, there you go. Uh, it, it could be any sort of separation, any sort of uh, in-group versus out-group, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I wanted to start with the Lita <laughs> because it, like... Um, it frames the whole thing as like it's a transgression, mm. right? There is something, there's a line being crossed here, and that line is relative to your class, your race, your culture and society that you live in. Age. But there's some lines that are so stark that they tend to be held by a lot of uh, multiple groups of people throughout the world. And the Lolita line is definitely one of those lines. Uh, so that's, I mean, that's why. I mean, it's also like one of those films that people talk about a lot. And it's a book people talk about a lot. Um, but I've never really, I don't think I've ever heard some like decent discussion about it. Because it has such a cultural cachet. It's one of those things where the symbol of it has sort of become self-reflexive to the point where the original source is feels completely lost mm -hmm. not only the book but also the film and so it's one of those things where i think it's a really it's a good movie to explore uh it's a it's kind of a movie that makes you nervous to explore right yeah. what blows my mind about this is that the, this book came out in what 55 i think in the mm -hmm. 50s and it was one of the most popular novels of the time in eisenhower's america there were people on the New York subway reading Lolita and you're, right. I, I can't put those two together again. It's also like rethinking about what the, like how people were in the fifties. Cause like that doesn't fit. Leave it to Beaver. Does it in our no. minds? No. So it's like, yeah, there's just, honestly, it's a minefield and I want to do some acrobats. That's really what it comes down to. Oh yeah. You're really, you're really pushing the envelope. Um, you mentioned how, uh, you know, the, the, just the, the existence, the reference to the film and the book upon which it's based um, feels so loaded today. Yeah. Uh, it's one of those kind of suggestions, perhaps, that um, is kind of embedded in you know the term that we have ascribed to this series of episodes, risque romance, and that we're talking about, yes, that actual, like literally the romance between characters uh, in the film, whether it's one-sided or two-sided or or you know, whatever, uh, is risque, but also like the existence of the movie itself is yeah. like a risque act of art, right? Sure. Yeah, um, absolutely. That is kind of how I did my own, uh, mental gymnastics to kind of, uh, uh, justify including this film and to dive in with you. But I have to say right from the outset, I mm -hmm. texted you in advance, bold claims are coming. Okay. Um, this is a Lolita episode, so I'm assuming both things. <laughs> yeah, so maybe that's a that's a little redundant. Um, I it plays as a romance film. There sure. are several qualities that yes have it easily be able to fit within the you know defined quadrants of that genre, and yet by its very nature. I don't know if we if if I how comfortable I don't feel comfortable calling it a romance film, right? Okay. Um, unlike all of the other films we will talk about, with the possible exception of a uh, '90s film that we'll uh, touch on called Poison Ivy, uh, so it'll be interesting <laughs> to see how this kind of gets a little circular as yeah. we go on. But with that uh, possible exception, I've yet to revisit the film for our episode on that one. But this is like just straight up uh it's a drama about sex abuse about pedophilia and how do you it, it's one-sided yes but like it's like literally watching something that has so little to do with what we would in any circumstance you know morally or otherwise socially or otherwise uh i think as a civilized society be willing to define as romantic right I, i'm gonna push say back. no Go ahead, push i'm back. gonna say absolutely no because let's see how uh, long it takes me to call you a pedophile a, a couple of reasons <laughs> one 
uh, romance doesn't necessarily, uh, you know, when we say the word romance, mm. you know, we have certain illusions in our head, but there's definitely, I mean, Kubrick himself calls it a touching love story. Oh right. So there, there's multiple things there. Now I, I see what you're saying. If you're talking about the book, the book is something different. The right. book is definitely more um, clear in its depiction of the main character's predilection for sexualizing um, girls, essentially, right? Mm -hmm. It's very clear what he's doing. It's very clear that it's wrong. And, I, you know, I think the main point of that book is, you know, um, there's a humanization going on there uh, where he, you know, the reader almost in weird ways finds them sort of sympathizing to him sometimes. And that's kind of the, the genius of the novel is he humanizes somebody who's essentially a monster. Right. Um, genius is an interesting choice of words, but yes. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that's kind of what it's, the, the thrust the of that book is. Of the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's almost like a writing challenge essentially. Right. Um, you know, I think about like uh, Sufjan Stevens. Uh, what was that? The John Wayne Gacy song, right? Right. right Chicago, like, there's yeah. just like a. It's it's an artist pushing himself to the absolute boundary, um, mm -hmm. which is why it was such a provocative novel, I think, and why it was so successful. The movie is something entirely different, right? Right. right. Uh, and and there's should, a should lot we, of. Should yeah. we at this point maybe pull back a bit to sure. Just, Let's let's do the outline, and then yeah, I think that's going to be the central topic of conversation: is how the two di diverge. Yeah. Um, and I, th I just to be clear from the outset, like I haven't read the novel. Have you? Yes. Yeah. You have. Okay. Because yeah. I tried. I, I have an old old copy from uh, my dad, and I for this episode tried to crack it open for the second time yeah um, first time being over 20 years ago when i saw this movie originally when sure. i was trying to uh you know check all the boxes on the kubrick filmography and it's just it's it is I've made a huge mistake that's what you said. <laughs> yeah it's it's uh in my view it's impenetrable and i like a lot of novel oh, book so. yes Oh yeah, I mean it basically is. You it's one of those books especially I don't know what was going on in the 50s where people were like, you know, just eating this up. Uh I found that very bizarre. Right. Yeah, reading it I was probably about 22, 23 when I read it. Um and yeah, it is and I I remember sitting in my basement reading it feeling gross, <laughs> uh, feeling dirty that I was reading it. Um but yeah, I mean, once you get over the get past the breakers of that disgust and nausea of what you're reading, and you get further into it, yeah, there's like a pull of the language. I would say, I and mean, the writing is incredibly beautiful. Right. I mean, that's. Um, I mean, that's and, the the appeal of the book. I mean, the character obviously is a despicable human being, uh, but that doesn't mean you can't write great literature about him. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, yeah. I mean, what do you want to say about this? Uh, you know th what. This came out, what, the early 60s, 1962. Uh, Stanley Kubrick had made, what, Spartacus right before this? Right. I think. Huge, multi, you know, big budget movie. Um, he tries to start <laughs> start this movie, and he initially... Uh, do we need to give an overview of it? Do people know what this is? I, th I think they do, but I think there's a couple key components that I... Sure. A, both had completely forgot about, and B, think are very easy to gloss over in because that central story is so iconic, yeah. for better or worse. Uh, but yeah, the central story, right, is it's Dr. Humbert is a French uh, literature professor. Yeah, it's yeah. They kind of play with that a little bit throughout do, the film. Yeah. Played by James Mason, and he has uh, come stateside because he has a lecturer assignment at beersley college in ohio in the fall and for some reason he's choosing new hampshire to summer in before that and he needs a place to live he moves in with uh a young woman who has a open room that she's renting out and uh her daughter is lolita and then yeah you can imagine where it goes from there the two central pieces that I think are often left out and that I literally forgot was sure. a, the entire relationship between Humbert and uh, the mom, Lolita's mother and B the character of Quilty played by Peter Sellers, 
who is kind of like hovering in the background of all the scenes. And he also yeah. is in the opening and closing of the film, uh, essentially as a, <laughs> for lack of a better term, rival pedophile. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Okay. Competition. Right. So I'm, I'm curious to break down those two pieces, but yeah, we I mean, yeah, the central relationship between Humbert and Lolita is probably, uh, uh, well, we have to trudge through first. Yeah. So. Well, it's important Take to it note too that, like, you know, he only marries with the thing of Charlotte, yeah. uh, Lolita's mother, because he wants to be close to Lolita. Yes. And then they're in the book, and I forget what he does in the film, and he hints at it, but there is this sort of uh, implication that he wants to murder Charlotte mm-hmm. uh, in order to be with Lolita. It's implied, I think, in the film. I think it's more explicit in the book, as I recall. Yeah, uh, but she ends up, you know, I'm not going to, you know, you got to, you know, got to see the movie, but yeah, he there, ends up, yeah. There's some, uh, there, there's one particular voiceover, um, in the film and there's like a weird kind of sporadic nature of voiceover in the movie as, uh, prefaced by our cold open clip, um, be where he literally says both I should kill her and he like has the gun in his hand. He yeah. thinks she's taking a bath. And then when he gets to the bathroom, his voiceover corrects itself and says, no, I could never do that. Yeah. Yeah. The, it's a the, lot you know, it's a messier classic case of the unreliable narrator. Right? Yeah. And it's also, yeah, a lot messier in the novel. Oh yeah. Because you get so much more of that internal monologue. Right. Yeah. And the big change in the novel too, is that the film opens up with, um, uh, the main character, uh, attacking somebody else. Right. Mm-hmm. And that doesn't happen until the end of, in the novel. Right. Completely changes the whole flow of this thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, essentially, you know, um, he ends up with Alita and they kind of go a little bit on the run, so to speak. And mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, where do you want to dive into this thing? Where do you okay. want to? You had mentioned that uh, in the, the, the structure, the chronology isn't the only thing that's changed here. Sure. Um, There's a Nabokov, lot that's changed. <laughs> Nabokov, the original novelist, technically has a screenplay credit. Yes, so, he does. Uh, as Kubrick ends up being notorious for, um, he completely, you know, took Nabokov's version of the adaptation and essentially threw it in the trash. Which was like uh, 400 pages, I think. Right? Yeah, yeah. So clearly, like that, and that's its own thing, right? I'd be interested yeah. to do a film trace on novelists attempting to adapt their own screen <laughs> into their own screenplays. Um, but, uh, you know, th- I think there's a few things at play. One is like Kubrick's like authoritarian idios- idiosyncrasies as an auteur is coming to a head, especially being so young. He's 33 making Lolita, which means he was like 31 when he made Spartacus, yeah, crazy. which is like insane. Cause like those big historical epics you'd think, you know, be made by somebody that, has a lot of years of filmmaking under their belt. He had essentially Paths of Glory and The Killing, and uh, that's about it, right? Um, mm-hmm. So he has kind of probably this inflated ego, uh, which only you know inflates more as his career goes on. But in this time period, I think there's also this kind of backlash that he's experiencing. Like it's reactive because he essentially got to see as a young gifted filmmaker with tons of ideas, how binding and restrictive the studio system was um, when he made Spartacus. And so he's both, you know, having this strong adverse reaction to that as well as, you know, starting to kind of get his footing as an auteur in his own right. And so to be able to like basically tell a best-selling novelist that the studio is hired to adapt their best-selling novel into a best-selling hopefully, you know, ticket selling big movie. Um, there's just like this, it, there's like some real like unprecedented hubris going on here. And uh, not only that, but uh, the tonal changes, the uh, scattershot voiceover, like there's so many elements here that at the time anyways, and obviously it's been reevaluated, especially, you know, with the historiography of Kubrick over the years. Um, But at the time it was kind of seen, there was like an anonymous uh, motion picture association of America spokesman who called it quote, the worst sort of botched up pastiche that could be imagined (laughs) because it is very strange. Uh, Like I said earlier, I don't know if it necessarily 
like just by literal definitions fits the romance genre um, because of it, the horrible nature of its protagonist, but also it uh, has like this, you know, the Peter Sellers character is like so weird, so bizarre, so weird. Um, And also like clearly, you know, Peter Sellers working things out to actually become Dr. Strangelove. Right. Yeah. Um, And then you've also got, uh, you know, the question of whether or not uh, Sue Lyon, who plays Lolita at age 14, um, like, is she like being treated the way a young child actor should be treated? I mean, it's 1962, so probably not. And especially considering what the role is. Yeah. Uh, it's just it, it leaves this awful taste in your mouth, not just because of the story. In my opinion, even as a huge Kubrick fan, yeah, it just leaves a bad taste because of thinking about all the components that go into adapting somebody's work, to hiring a child actor, to trying to course correct after you know a bad experience doing a big budget epic. Uh, he like he literally the literally opening scene is Peter Sellers making a joke about saying I am Spartacus, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's 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 my initial like take and i'm curious just even like divorcing yourself from it as a like intellectual exercise sure uh what was your gut reaction to i assume rewatching this movie or what's your history no i've never seen it before what yeah i never seen it before um it's interesting because i just watched the killing for the first time like maybe a year ago so good i see i mean this is you know (laughs) we're gonna disagree because the killing is that you know is the at the end of that noir period right let's say 45 to 55 and it's like 56 i think Mm-hmm. So it's like I had watched a lot of movies leading up to it. And I was like, I don't love this. I don't love mm-hmm. it. Um, it's really like technically interesting and amazing, but like the story is not good. Um, in my mind, I don't like early Kubrick. I just don't. Um, That's a glory, no? No. Uh, I mean, you got to get to like the 70s before he really clicks for me. Well, I guess Dr. Strangelove is probably my yeah. favorite movie from the 60s, uh, one of his. Uh but yeah, he doesn't click for me until the 70s. Um, I don't even like Full Metal Jacket. So, what? I mean, yeah, exactly. I'm okay. a platoon guy. Um, in any event, yeah, my feelings on Alita, uh, I guess I, you know, like completely getting out of the intellectual discussion, like you said, um, I'm incredibly confused by the positive response to this movie um, for a lot of reasons. Yeah. One, um, I don't think it's a very tightly made movie. Right. It feels very messy and for all the reasons that you stated. Um, but I think it, it, and when you get into the production, how this thing was made, it makes a lot more sense because it was essentially made under duress. Um, the whole thing is uh, feels compromised from the beginning, uh, like a terrible, terrible idea um, to even think that you could film something like this. Um, there's certainly iconic parts to it. Um, but I think overall I was actually very, very underwhelmed by it. Um, hmm. and I'm not, you know, an expert in sixties film or I'm just not, uh, so I don't really have a much clout there. Um, but it, it felt very flat to me. And I think, uh, the Peter, Peter Seller stuff especially feels, um, like a different movie. Um, and it le- leans into this sort of black comedy territory where it really can't, right? I think that that to me is the biggest struggle of this film is essentially the novel is about something despicable and awful, but it's a very specific thing. And the movie essentially, you know, like tries to navigate around all of the icebergs. And it does because it had to get passed by the MPAA. If it did not get passed by the MPAA, who cut, you know, several scenes by like 30, 40 seconds, um, it can't get released. So it, it, it basically cannot exist without the MPAA saying, hey, this is okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, in general, it, it feels like an absolute mess to me. Um, and not a very enjoyable film. Um, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no, there's not much to it. I mean, what character in here is uh, decent? I mean, even, no, she- even and- Shelley Winters is just like, it's like, ugh. Right. Who plays, yeah, like, who plays Everybody's Charlotte. awful. Everybody's I, awful. I, and that's the thing I want to kind of say about that relationship is like, you really want to be able to feel for her um, as this woman who's being duped and 
but like she's just she's so awful to Lolita herself you know yeah and and like I guess that's supposed to be part of like the dark humor of like she you know miraculously gets hit by the car so that the uh, abuse can occur uh, without obstacle Um, and yet I just like that was just like yet another scene where I'm just like pit in my stomach but like not in a good way like uh there there should be some kind of like it as you said earlier you don't have to you don't have to have likable people no it as your characters in a story for it to be effective for it to have something to say for it to work but it's just like the kind of pit in your stomach where you're already you know basically all the way there by the premise itself and so Mm -hmm. like you have to do a lot of work. And yes, you're right. Nabokov's uh, prose, you know, like I said, I, I couldn't do uh, more than a few pages of Lolita, but like Pale Fire, Crying of Lot 49, it's like he has clearly a gift for doing the uncanny um, with very ordinary language. And that could have so easily, like, I, I, I don't want to like fall into the trap of like, or the easy um out that a lot of critics have of of this movie which is that you know it's an unfilmable novel and so it should have never been made but like i feel like there's something that could have happened i i've yet to see it in film i think i can't think of an example Mm -hmm. there's obviously the remake for hbo with jeremy irons oh god yeah um which has its own huge baggage to it with uh you know the exploitation of dominic dominique swain uh who played lolita in that version and um the only other thing i can think of maybe just because like this is such an awful uh topic to make a movie about even when it is made about like the hunt which we did for existential thriller it's actually not like there is no pedophilia it's the it's the accusations that that movie focuses on the only other one that comes to mind is the woodsman with kevin bacon bacon yeah right and and that movie tried so hard to like humanize uh somebody that that is very like one of the most difficult kinds of humans to humanize yeah um yeah. and you know he it, he really tried with it Kira sedgwick tried in a supporting role uh, yeah. you can tell like their their real life marriage um kind of brought a lot of heaviness to that movie but it's a footnote in cinematic history and it's just yeah. it's also just like once again not an enjoyable watch so it's like that weird question of like, yeah, you can make movies with despicable people as the characters, but there's got to be something to make it actually feel like it's worthwhile to like spend your time with. I, well, and, I think that they, you know, when they were making this movie, I think they felt the same way. Yeah. And like, there's like, I got to read this quote because it's going to make you hate this movie even more. Woo. Uh, James B. <laughs> Harris producer. He said this in 1999 in a premiere magazine interview. Uh, I'm going to read this entire quote because it's it's long, but it's really fascinating. Uh, we decided that Lolita was a bizarre love story, uh, and they were not. We were not going to deal with Humbert's predilection for little girls. We're not interested in a pervert. The great love stories are usually about the inability of lovers to get together. In the old days, they alienate themselves from society by religious differences, by class differences, by color differences. All of these things had been done before, but what hadn't been done before was age difference. If we could make him the most innocent guy and her a little brat and just single her out as someone to fall in love with, let people put their own interpretation on it. How do you feel about that? I mean, <laughs> the guy, he he's also the central reason uh, from, you know, my cursory Google research for this sto- for this uh, episode. But yeah. it seems like he's the, he's the name that keeps coming up yeah. when it comes to uh, how awful Sue Lyon um, uh, was dealt with in Hollywood, sure, and, yeah. or or wasn't able to have a voice in her own, you know, career, and literally, like, even just the salary for the movie um, was contested over and over again. Yeah. Um, so, I, yeah, he does not seem like a great guy, uh, and you know, Stanley's got his own issues, but it seems like it was. It's one of those like really icky um, pairings in uh the industry where it's like you have somebody who doesn't really care about the taboo and is willing to like do something 
to to make it less taboo to like yeah. start to stoke discussion and that's stanley but then you've also got the guy that's like willing to make it happen no matter what the cost and what kind of own mental gymnastics you have to put yourself through to like to spin it so that it's like a a, a sellable idea which is really interesting if you look at that in comparison to like the publishing industry because like you said is really difficult to imagine from our modern viewpoint uh what it would be like to like get on the train and see somebody reading lolita without yeah. having all the baggage attached to it yeah. but it's just like you know uh from the get-go you know movies was a whole different thing that whole idea of the visual yes um and the haze code and it's just like rife with this real like oh gosh am i maybe i am falling into the it's unfilmable trap (laughs) yeah i mean and i i don't know that it is filmable i don't think most books are filmable I mean, that's kind of my stance as a literate person. I don't, mm-hmm. the, it's such a different medium that it's nearly impossible. Like, how would you film Sound of the Fury? Literally impossible. Uh, ask like James you, Franco. Yeah. No. <laughs> I knew you were going to bring it up. Um, yeah, completely unfilmable. Speaking I think of pedophiles. Yes. yes <laughs> true. Um, and, uh, but, uh, yeah, and I don't think Lolita's really filmable either. But you hit on something really fascinating about this, and there's a great um, BBC article. Um, I can't remember when it came out. I read it like, last night. Oh, the 60th anniversary. It might one, have right? been, where it talks about how the image has been so decoupled from the movie. Yeah. Uh, and how the term Lolita... I, I just find it fascinating. Like You would never name a girl Lolita now, right? Mm-hmm. That's an unnamed... I thought about that. Because my wife's like, about to have that, a baby. It's like naming a girl Isis. <laughs> like, you can't, it doesn't work anymore. That no. alone tells you something. Yeah. Like how powerful of uh, an idea or book or cultural touchstone this was to this day. And there's like talks of, there's some stuff in the BBC article about, you know, like I think like Katy Perry sent, uh, tweeted something about Lilia and then she had to like apologize oh, because God, they're, again, know. it's decoupled. It's like the concept of of a Lolita is not what the novel was about, and it's really not what the movie was about. Uh, it's something different now, um, and you know, I think that's uh, the whole thing is fascinating to me because it's like um, thinking back to when this was made. There are so many things in the way of making it. One, they had to film in England because no American company would touch this. Right. Um, even the novel, the novel, no publisher would touch it. It was some indie print press that originally did it, that like 2,000 copies that had was rife with like spelling errors and like complete shit show. Um, but it just hit at the right time for whatever group of people. The, the key, t- I mean, the question that I have is what keeps people coming back to this, right? Like what about the book at that time? And what about the idea of it perpetuates 50, 60, 70 years later now from when the book came out? Like, what, what is the, is it just the taboo subject, uh, nature of the subject? Is well, it, I don't know, is it, does it feel transgressive? You know, I, I don't know. I mean, what do you think? I mean, I feel like maybe this is too obvious, but... Um, looking at some of the, the notes you have, um, another quote from Creepazoid, uh, James B. Harris, is yeah. we knew we must make her a sex object. Yes. Yeah, so that multiple like, interviews. Right. And, you know, we have this long history in America in particular, um, which I think is – isn't as strong in Europe. Um, mm-hmm. At least that's that's the kind of sense I've gotten looking at, you know, uh, especially how literature um, and pop culture in general uh, operates, you know, with uh, obscenities, obscenity laws and nudity and all that uh, between the two countries, media worlds. You have this inherent, like, taboo of not just... Uh, you know, age gaps and pedophilia and all that, but also just like specifically this, it, it, it has this paradox where you talk about decoupling. The paradox is that all that stuff is just like also wrapped up and coupled with the notion of, and of like the fetishization of um, youth. Right. hundred percent. Yeah. And so like, Absolutely. are, are we surprised that we are a country 
uh, that has like <laughs> pedophiles in it. Like, I, I don't know. I, I, that, that would be a really depressing and uncomfortable research project. Um, but uh, it, Rate of pedophilia in the United yeah. States versus other country. I would you right. it's higher. Guarantee it's higher. Uh, yeah. I, uh, I mean, it's just like there's this and and you know and go back to like the inherent hegemony of uh hollywood especially during this time period and it's all it's you know almost uniformly male right uh so to to call that into question just seems like a no brainer like you've got the media fetishizing youth and you've got men all in <laughs> the positions of power yeah. And yeah, you're just going to wind up with – and like the the thing that just still boggles my mind, like yeah, whatever, Kubrick it took uh, a taboo novel and then he followed it up with uh, Dr. Strangelove, which is a brilliant satire on you know American politics and foreign wars. But then yeah. this movie also – like it, like you said, it, it had uh, its detractors and sure. I mentioned that too – but it also still got like Academy Award and Golden Globe nominations. Absolutely, Golden Globe, Academy Award. So, okay. uh, what mean, is this did, cognitive dissonance? Well, it did the two. I gotta go to the box office part of this. So it was made for in today's dollars sixteen, seventeen million dollars, which is pretty low. That's not necessarily like an. It's kind of like an indie, almost like a mid tier kind of studio right. film. Respectable, anyways, um, I guess. Yeah, and it, but but it made ninety million, ninety one million worldwide. Oh my god! Massive. Right, compared to its production budget. Um, yeah, there's something about it that, like, for whatever reason, I, I do feel that there's sort of, when people watch it or read it, um, I think the transgression excites people, as fuck, fucked up as that sounds. Right, right. Um, but that's pretty common in human nature, or something is um, socially um, frowned upon or socially wrong or illegal, People like to do it just to feel the sense that they're breaking the laws or breaking the rules. I think that's that's a big component to this. Um, but I mean, I think that the, at the same time too, the movie itself, um, I, I, I it, to me, it, it's played as a romance film. Now, I'm not saying that that's a good thing. <laughs> no, I get what, what you I'm mean. Saying yeah. is that they attempted to make a love story out of this. When, yeah, in the book, it kind of is a love story, but because of the way the book works on you, um, it's very clear that the narrator is insane um, or me severely mentally ill, I would say. Yeah. Um, and that is not clear at all in the movie. There's moments where he, yeah, he attacks the nurse and the, but it's almost like he's just, oh, he's, he's so exasperated. Right. And they even say it, they make him look into, look like a kind of innocent guy. In the right. movie, and I'm like, that's you talk about like disgusting or wrong, or like making uh, Sue Lyon so sexualized, um, like it's unforgivable. Like the yeah. what they they put on the poster, it's on the cover of the book with her in those glasses, like uh, with the lollipop thing. It's like that to me is way worse than what the novel does, yeah. like because it, um, and, and I think the novel is so troubling as you read it and it's supposed to be right. It's supposed to make you upset. It's supposed to make you feel something different. The movie's way too slick, way yeah. too slick. And, um, I think that, you know, there's, it's almost like people are consuming it and not really understanding what they're consuming because it, the movie makes it into a love story. Right. Yeah. And there's a, there's a crazy quote here from Kubrick. Where is this? Uh, from 1971, Kubrick said, uh, Naturally, I regret that the film could not be more erotic. Oh, God. The eroticism of the story serves a very important purpose in the book, which was lacking in the film. It obscured any hint that Hubert Hubert loved Lolita. Right. Like, <sighs> so it's like you talk about problematic. Like, this movie is the definition of problematic. What I can't understand is that if you go through Letterboxd and you go through Rotten Tomatoes and you look at the current cultural understanding of this film, there's not a lot of this discussion, right? There's a little bit of the, well, Sue Lyon was mistreated, bad, very bad thing, blah, blah, blah. But I don't see a lot of attacks on Kubrick, right? Right. 
right? Because I mean, he is such a status. Yeah. You know, he's like a god to film film people. Um, but he was part of something that was really screwed up. Right. Like this is a screwed up movie. Um, it, it is. And I think that like one of the things that I latched onto having just um, I taught uh, Full Metal Jacket last year. I saw Eyes Wide Shut for the first time last yeah. year. And uh, I mean, you can draw a lot of parallels between those two films, right? It, I think you could even go so far as to do a deep read on Eyes Wide Shut as arguably, you know, part of like his uh, um, his uh, guilt uh, yeah. over Lolita. Um, mm-hmm. If if you were to <laughs> think that, you know, he, he has some kind of ability to look back and unfavorably on his own career um, with the, you know, kind of enormous ego that he was known to have. But I, uh, the piece that, that stuck out to me a lot with this watch. And I don't think I, I definitely like, I, I don't know what I was doing watching this movie at 20 or whatever, when I was going <laughs> through Kubrick's filmography, but like, he is known, and he this uh, this works really well in The Shining too. Speak another yeah. movie about abuse, um, the detachment uh, that he's yes. so known for as a Absolutely. filmmaker. Uh, you know, two thousand one, and basically every movie he's made is known for that that style of just like you know that's why people kind of I think have uh, deified him as a film god because like he's able to. You know, even Clockwork Orange, another film that has this horrible subject matter and really awful depictions on screen of violence and sexual assault, by having that camera as treated almost as like a third eye, like all seeing kind of godlike device, it doesn't, you never really get that subjectivity that's needed, no. I think, for. A movie like this for a story like this which is the basis of the novel is subject right right that's the whole and point like, of the novel <laughs> yeah yeah and the the biggest scene that comes to mind that i felt like just did not work because kubrick's style just doesn't doesn't mesh with that um especially his early style is when humber gets found out right charlotte walks in or no mm-hmm. he walks into his room and charlotte has found his diary yeah um filled with his despicable poems about uh, Lolita, and you know she understandably has a huge reaction, but like all the pieces of you know uh, Chekhov's diary, we know that it, he's going to get found out at some point. But uh, the act, and I, I to give him credit, like James Mason, I, I don't know why he took this job. Yeah, really fascinating but, guy, huh? Right. <laughs> um, but he, there's traces of it in his performance of of that like knowing what he's doing is despicable yeah um not in the script because like like we said kubrick chopped it all up um but it's just like in that scene not only because like we we feel for charlotte but also she's kind of horrible in her own right and uh we see like for a glimpse we see uh humbert as the monster he is and yet kubrick's camera is just like there it's not it's like does those like roving shots through the house like, yeah. there is some like really interesting like panic room plate but yeah there's a great there's a great analysis of uh you know how much fincher is essentially just like taking the crown of kubrick um and and there's a lot to admire on a technical level and we kind of talked about this when we did our uh, episode on frenzy yeah. um hitchcock movie uh speaking Oof. of like problematic <laughs> ultimate auteurs uh where if if he had just like wanted to get things a little more intense and wanted to like let go of being the all-seeing eye we could have perhaps seen that and so that's why i'm like yeah. i'm really interested in seeing what luca g does with bones and all if for no other reason, because then like he knows how to like work that camera in a way that uh, doesn't like, very rarely allows for objectivity, right? Yes, it's very subjective um, viewpoints. Uh, and so I think like uh, I just because the other piece of this that kind of connects Bones and All and Lolita is what's happening right now. 
uh, with TV and everybody, so many people's obsession with the the Dahmer series on Netflix. Uh And just like this ultimate, just like careless and once again, like in an attempt to do like an all-seeing like huge piece of pop culture, but just like not having any respect for like the actual the actual topic at hand well because of the the people who are making it i think lolita is the same way less the novel than the movie is those people aren't real to them mm-hmm. right they're just sort of play things yeah it's in and, so, and it do you get that sense too where it's like it's it is like an intellectual exercise for them more so than a, like a real thing that needs to be grappled with no it's an artistic tool right <laughs> okay okay right like it's yeah, it's, I think, you know, especially with this movie, it was sort of like, well, let me paint myself into a corner, which he literally did. He had him, like, move to England, and, like, the MPA was, like, there on set doing looking at dailies. Like, this is how insane this movie was. Um, it's like, why would you do that? Like, why would you make a movie where you can't be free to do what you want? Um, and I think there's, yeah, there's just sort of, like, and the Dharma thing's a really good thing to bring up, because... Um, you know, a lot of those people are still alive. Uh, it wasn't that long ago. Right. Uh, and it's sort of just, um, I'm sure that they think, you know, Ryan Murphy is, you know, also an egomaniac, all right, type person, just like Kubrick. And I think there's a sense of, well, I can right the wrongs or something, mm-hmm. right? Or I, as the artist, the great artist, I can um, bring voice to the oppressed, which is a link to our next movie, A Taste of Funny, in 1961. Um, yeah. Good segue, Dan. Right? There's a there's that sort of, I can be the voice of the silenced. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, that's a very tough thing to do. Um, you know, thinking about Taste of Honey, you know, which is uh, a 1961 movie from England uh, involving uh, a young woman a uh, teenager who lives with her mother in kind of, I guess you would call it squalor kind of conditions, you know, poverty, lower working class, um, you know, in, in her sort of life that was so foreign to the people watching the movie. Right. And Tony Richardson uh, and Sheila Delaney, who, who wrote it, it was originally a play. Uh, she wrote it when it was, she was 19 years old. She wrote it in 11 days. <laughs> Uh, and it was her play too, right? Yeah, it was her play. Yeah, um, so this, this is a this is a much better example of a novelist. Yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, she was very young, very young, and it was you know a play first, and it was a very successful play before it became a film. Um, but it does um, kind of give a a glimpse of a world where most people, and I think when a lot of people saw this movie, that like, these people don't exist. This can't be real. Right. Right. Um, and I think A Taste of Honey is a, a wonderful film. I was really blown away by it personally. Yeah. I, um, I have to know. This is the first time on this podcast where you selected a movie I hadn't even heard of. Yeah. So well, where did looking, you dig this up? <clears throat> I was looking very deep at um, uh, just any movie that dealt with forbidden love. And in this case, it would be Joe, who's a teenage girl living in, I guess, a, a part of Manchester. Um, and she ends up falling in love with a black sailor. Uh, and, you know, this is the early 60s. This is one of the f- one of the first movies to really show that. And, and with gritty naturalism, too, I must say. It had been done before in a sort of grandiose studio style. Yeah. Um, but this felt visceral. It felt very authentic and real in a way that a big studio movie never would. Um, and the thing about this movie, too, you know, getting released in the early 60s, I don't know if it had any play over here in the U.S. I had never heard of it before at all. Um, but you can, I don't know, watching it now, you're like, wow. It's always great to see an older film like this that feels like it could have been released yesterday. Like there's yeah. just a sense of rawness and openness. Uh, and you can tell that this had essentially been kind of workshopped for a, a few years uh, on stage before they made it into a film because every scene, um, it just sort of, it, 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 it pops. Every scene has a sort of allure to it. 
Um, even though it's a very sort of tough movie, I think at the same time, mm-hmm. um, you know, it's, it's so fascinating to me when we think about like Lolita is dealing with these very kind of strange relationships. Um, a lot of them, not very good relationships, obviously taste of honey does that too, but it doesn't in a way that feels way more honest uh, yes. about how people actually are. And there's actually likable people <laughs> in this movie. Yes. Unlike and Lolita. I mean, what did you think of it? Oh yeah, no, I liked it a lot. Um, it's it's one of those movies that you, I, I arguably admire it more than I uh, like love it or enjoy sure. it. But um, it's super. It's like it's crazy important. Like I said, I didn't even know it existed, but it 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 has um, not only that. I mean, I learned that it was the birth of kitchen sink realism. Yeah, um, that's where the term came from, which is crazy because, like, I love Mike Lee's movies, and he is a big proponent of that kind of style. I teach the free cinema movement when we go over documentaries nice. in my film studies class. Um, but to like see that in such a like in in its infancy is like really remarkable. Um, if for no other reason than it's like it's it's great proof to have especially as like a you know bleeding heart liberal to be like this is not a new thing like this is this is something that has just been that even like it's a it's a miracle i think that this movie got made uh because of its subject matter because of how um lovingly it depicts um really taboo subjects for the time period that shouldn't have been taboo right yeah Mm -hmm. um and actually, I arguably, I, I, I really struggled, I have to admit, with the first half of the film. Okay. Um, the mother-daughter relationship is difficult Yeah. Um, in a, in a s- not dissimilar way uh, from Charlotte and Lolita. Absolutely. Uh, There's a lot right? of crossover. That, that's an interesting parallel. But the thing that really sold me is that really dramatic, and it could have easily been, you know, just been melodrama and ruined the whole thing but it actually made it click for me when uh the mother is finally you know given the ultimatum by her new husband about whether to you know cut things off with her daughter or not and to to have that kind of ultimatum not billow into this big histrionic thing Sure. But just kind of shrink down to its smallness and lead into this really just like it was just so heartwarming to see the second half of this movie blossom into a tale of friendship yeah. between um, uh, the pr- protagonist and um, her new gay roommate. Yeah. And that's another obvious taboo for the time period. And I love this quote. uh um, Sarah Baslow did a, a retrospective on the film um, six years ago for Pop Matters, and she said, uh, you could argue, quote, that Jeffrey, the gay roommate, is not only the nicest character in the film, but that he and Joe, the protagonist, enjoy the only truly caring and successful relationship in the film. Yeah. Oh, I mean, to me, that's the most transgressive part of the whole movie. Totally. And like, so, it's like, like... It's crazy. So, so you have... Too. And it really actually opened my eyes for this whole series of episodes that we're doing because – and I've talked about this when uh, talking about romance movies with my students where it's like you know, romance doesn't have to be like this super aggressive physical thing. No. Like the, just like the existence of like friendship in movies, yeah. whether it's you know gay or whether it's straight or whether it's just like – just intimacy is yeah. – it's huge. And uh, yeah, so that that's really what kind of got me over the hump with this movie because it is – I mean it shoves it in your face in the best way possible Yeah, um, that like these this is a world that exists and you need to know about it. Um, but then the way that it just so lovingly transitions into this story of friendship is uh, – God, it's just so – it's so wholesome. It makes me sick in a good way. Yeah, I mean, it's um, there's definitely that sort of naturalism. Is this neorealism? Would you call? It? I don't know. I don't have anything on film. I, th- I think the Italians have have the have the the well, say on like that the one. Style of but it, right. sort of showing right. you know this very real people. The acting, it's not super staged. Like the like kids and stuff are just kids from the neighborhood. 
Um, and it took Britain a while to kind of catch up with that because they were so stuck on, you know, sound studios and stuff. Yeah, exactly. So there's a different type of shooting and stuff like that. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the thing to me that uh, kind of to echo what you're saying is the part that initially was brought up as being super transgressive, which is her, you know, a love and sexual relationship with uh, the black man. Uh, and she's essentially going to have a biracial baby, right? Right. Um, that part of it, it was like, you know, okay, you're watching it now. You're like, yeah, whatever. Like, why would anybody care about this? Um, but it was to me, her relationship with Jeffrey yeah. that yeah. felt very radical. And it honestly feels very radical today. Um, it does. You're right. Because it's it, what it does is it, ta- is it a form of romance? I think so, without a doubt. Um, In the it's a sexual sense. romance, right? Yeah. But it's a type of love and respect for another person. Um, and maybe romance isn't the right term, right? Maybe we could, there isn't really a term for it, right? I think that's the problem. Bromance, like, yeah, if they bro- were both men. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. But I mean, it's like this um, level of intimacy and respect that is not sexualized. Yeah. That is incredibly healthy. Right, they both love each other. They take care of each other. They have each other's back. Um, it is kind of a tragedy at the end, right? It's right? to kind of spoil it that the mother is kicked out by her new husband because I think I don't know why he maybe got sick of her. She's drinking too much, um, and she sort of replaces Jeffrey as the sort of live-in assistant as Joe is pregnant, about to have a a baby that so does have a little bit of a tragic ending. But I think what really makes the, that film sing is that that type of relationship, you look at Joe, um, the young girl in this film, and she seems totally alone. She seems like she, you know, her mother doesn't even want her around. Um, she's incredibly poor. And every, you know, every day for the rest of her life is going to be this incredible struggle just to survive, like most people's lives in this world. <laughs> And for that moment with Jeffrey, she has this spark in this magic of love, right? It's it's true love, essentially. Um, and I think she gets to experience that just for a moment. But I think there's there's honestly an incredible beauty in that, yeah. um, which you know, I, it does that feels transgressive because I think most people don't allow that into their lives because it's not in some form that it's supposed to be. Yeah, you know there I mean? are. I, I have to say that the, I agree with everything you're saying. There are two very unfortunate facts about this movie that mm. uh, just, just uh, that might ruin the whole the whole uh, enterprise. Um, number one, it's Morrissey's favorite film, so that sucks. <laughs> it is. I think she's on uh, <laughs> Sheila she's Delaney's on one, one of their covers. Yeah, 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 the Smiths. Um, number two, uh, Rita Tushingham, who plays yeah. Joe. Yes. Um, phenomenal performance, especially for a first time. Oh, unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, but unfortunately, she does um, grow old uh, to end up playing. Do you know this? No. The landlord in Last Night in Last Night Soho. Uh, oh, that's her? Oh, that's her. God. Isn't that crazy? That's nuts. And yeah, unfortunate. Oh, well, she's good in that too, I guess. <laughs> no, yeah. She, she did what she could. <laughs> she did. You know what I'm talking about. Um, no, but great, yeah, I mean, great, I think really this great pick, is. Though. Yeah, this is, these are, I love, I, I, I'm going to pat myself on the back. I love this pairing of films. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because it's, it's just such a, um, it's two very different views of romance and love. And the risque part of it is so different as well. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. it came out within a year of each other. Uh, and, I, and I got to say this too. It's like Lolita um, landed like an atom bomb mm-hmm. back then. And no one's ever heard of Taste of Honey. Right. It's just not something that um, film nerds know about it, obviously, right? Especially yeah, British film It's on the nerds. Criterion Collection. Yeah, it's got all the... By the way, if you are, if you see, watch this film on Criterion, there's some great interviews um, with the actors. Nice. Uh, one thing to note, too, you're, like, you're talking about, oh, like, it, it, as a, a bleeding heart liberal, like, it kind of <laughs> reaffirms... Yeah, well, yeah. The, the reason this, this play exists is became, uh, it was done in the socialist uh, theater group. Hell yeah. Is how it came about. So like, it's one of those things where it's like, yeah, this is a work of radical art without a doubt. Uh, I think it's a very successful one. Uh, and pairing it next to Lolita is just sort of like, 
you know, this the god of film and, you know, is right in his early prime and stuff like that. And here's this really small film written by a 19-year-old that just runs circles around him, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that's my viewpoint. I don't know. What do you think? No, yeah, I think that's totally fair. I mean, I, I well, I'll probably still keep teaching Kubrick, but I'm going to add this one uh, to, to the to the list. Um, you know, it's it, it's it's a great exercise. Speaking of intellectual exercises, of like, do you do you deconstruct or do you watch? Do you give your clicks and streams to the films that generate discourse or the ones that Need, that should be the ones generating discourse, right? Yeah. Um, it's on HBO Max too. So if you don't have a Criterion subscription, um, uh, you can still catch the Janice Films um, print on HBO Max. Uh, and I think it's yeah, I think it should be requiring viewing for 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 all film nuts. Even saying that as somebody who wasn't in love with the movie, I it's I it's incredibly important part of film history that should be more canonized than it is. What do we got coming up next week on the... Uh... Oh, boy, it's my picks. Uh, well, one of my favorite movies. Oh, great. I'm so glad we are finally going to talk about a Terrence Malick movie together. Yes. Badlands. Old Terry. With a little <laughs> with a little chaser of Harold and Maude. Never seen That'll it. That'll be an interesting... Oh, what? Never okay. seen it. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. I'm very curious. And Gary Fursuna Shock is going to join us. That's going to be fun. It's going to be a really good one. All right. Uh, thank you. This has been Film Trace. Film Trace.